0: have this praise and worship team that we have. I was, it was unrelated to what I'm going to share, but yesterday I was watching a video by John Piper and he was saying that, you know, when the spirit falls in a service, what does that look like? And sometimes it looks like a sudden event that happens, unexpected, but other times it can be just as equal when you have a praise and worship team that spends years practicing their craft, that spends years learning their instruments, that spends weeks practicing these songs to prepare an environment just for us to come into and worship. And that's what we get to experience every week. So just thank you guys for that. That is such an awesome privilege we have to come here and worship. Uh, Well, good morning. Welcome to you guys. I'm glad you're all here. I'm glad I have the chance to come and and speak to you again. And this morning we're going to talk about um, keeping ourselves from idols. Um, In our our college-aged Sunday school class, we've been going through the book of 1 John. And this will kind of be our, our official ending to the book of First John, guys. I know we, we've kind of been in this book for quite a while, so you can, you can breathe that sigh of relief that it's coming to a close, but you do have to listen to me one more time about it. Well, what we've learned from John's teaching as we've gone through the book of First John, the thing that John is adamant about to the church he's writing is that they hold fast to the gospel. They hold fast to the gospel that John himself taught them. He's very adamant that they have proper beliefs and that they have proper theology. And then John goes on and he says, If you believe in the Gospels, in the Gospel, the actions of your life will prove that. If you have sincere faith, you will live in such a way that demonstrates that. You will obey the commands of God. The, under, the underlying message of much of what John says is, is that what you believe will be proven by your actions. Beliefs lead to actions. Very important theme in John's letter there. And turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to look at the last verse of this letter. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, up to this point in the letter... John hadn't mentioned idolatry. He hadn't talked about it. He hadn't taught on it. He just ends the letter with this admonition to the church to keep yourselves from idols. And at first look, we might be tempted to say, well, this is unrelated to our beliefs. This is unrelated to believing in the gospel. This is unrelated to our actions and those things. But I think as we, as we actually get an understanding of what idolatry is, we're going to see how that does affect our beliefs and subsequently our actions. And so where we're going to go today, we're going to look first at idolatry. We're going to try and define that. Um, we're going to look then at how idols affects our, affect our beliefs and subsequently our actions. And then lastly, we're going to look at how to keep ourselves from those idols. It's kind of where we're headed today. So first of all, what is an idol? What do we mean by that? And more importantly, I think what we need to understand first, what did John mean when he wrote... Keep yourselves from idols. What did John have in mind when he used the word idol? And then when we get that understanding, we'll turn and see, does that have any application for us today with John's definition? So what did John mean when he told his audience to keep themselves from idols? Well, what do you think of when you think of idol worship during biblical times? Um, when normally what I think of, I think of people who have created a carbon image and who are bowing down before that carven image, right? They're bringing sacrifices to that image, and they're worshiping it. Well, that seems kind of antiquated for us in the United States today. That does go on in the world, but that seems kind of distant from anything that you and I here at Gateway Baptist Church in Montgomery might be tempted with. I, don't, I haven't been tempted in my lifetime to go bow down before a carven image. So does that mean that we can just write off John's... Uh, and and two, I mean, before we... can there's also, that was going on in New Testament times as well, right? We know in uh, the book of, of Acts, we see Paul in, uh, in Athens, in Acts 17, he's, he's there and he sees all these carven images that the people of Athens have made. We see this in Corinth, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth then, um, they, they, we know that they had a temple to Aphrodite. We also know that they were sacrificing meat to idols that Paul was warning them about eating. So we know that when John wrote this word of keep yourselves from idols, John most likely had in mind that that practice of bowing before a carven image. But I don't think that we can just throw out John's warning simply because he was encouraging the church at that time not to engage in the worship of carven images. Because even though the form of idol worship was different in biblical times, The act of worshiping an idol begins in the same place. The creation and worship of a carbon image starts in the heart. Remember that beliefs lead to actions and your actions flow out of your beliefs. Uh, For instance, in biblical times, you had people that... uh, They would worship specific gods. I mentioned Aphrodite a minute ago. It was the God of beauty, of love, of sex. And if you wanted love, if you wanted beauty, the idea was, I'm going to go worship Aphrodite. I'm going to go try and appease this God. And hopefully she will bless me with what I think I need in order to be fulfilled. It was a works-based mentality. And is that all that different from what we do today? Right? Don't we still... We don't think in terms of of appeasing some mythological God. But don't we still engage in this workspace mentality? If I work hard enough, I'll obtain whatever it is that I think I'm lacking. And then when I have that, I will have ultimate fulfillment. I'll obtain that job and then I'll be happy. I'll obtain that ideal body image and then I'll be at peace. I'll meet my savings goal and then I'll be secure. I'll be accepted by this certain group of people and then I'll feel good about myself. That's a temptation we have. Let me read to you what Tim Keller says about idolatry in his book Counterfeit Gods. We studied this a couple of years back here at Gateway. Tim Keller says the human material, I'm sorry, the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment. If we attain them, he says, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. And therefore, and and therefore, it drives us to break rules. We once honored to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. He goes on to say, "What, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. And lastly, he says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So today we don't kneel before a carven image, but just as they did in John's day, we do serve things other than Jesus, other than Jesus Christ to try and obtain from this world what only God can give. So and I think the important thing to remember, too, is we've already said idolatry is a matter of the heart. It begins in the heart. Look at Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 3. Rob's going to put it up on the, on the screen here, so you don't need to turn there. But Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 3, it says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. So John's warning to keep ourselves from idols is not just a warning about engaging in some kind of physical activity. It's a warning to guard your beliefs, right? It's a warning to keep from turning from God for fulfillment to another thing, a created thing for fulfillment. So with that understanding of what idolatry is, an understanding that it can even be good things, right? Even good things we can make an idol. Even good things, we can say right, we can turn from God to that good thing and say, This thing is going to fulfill me more than God Himself will. So with that understanding of idolatry, I think we can see that John's warning is certainly applicable for us Today, the next point that we're going to look at is how idols affect our beliefs and subsequently our actions. You see, as we take idols into our hearts, our beliefs change and our actions will follow. And one of the stories we're going to look at today, you can go ahead and turn there. It's Exodus 32. We're going to look at the Israelites and their practice of idolatry. And we're going to see how the, how idolatry changes the beliefs of your heart's which leads you to act in a different way. So turn to Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to read this, and then I'm going to give you a little background. We're we're all very familiar with this story for the most part. So in, in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what I want to do before we really dive into this, I want to look at what the Israelites had gone through up to this point to hopefully give us a little better understanding. We often look at the Israelites We often look at the apostles in the Bible and we say, man, those guys were dumb. What in the world were they thinking? But I think that we can see ourselves in a lot of these stories. And so let's let's understand what it is the Israelites had been through leading up to this story. Well, first of all, the good things, right? God's brought them out of Egypt. He set them free from generations of slavery. In a miraculous manner, he delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh. He supernaturally provides food for them each and every day. He leads them through the desert with a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He parts the Red Sea for them to escape the pursuing Egyptians. And, And most significantly of all, he makes a covenant with them. He says that the Israelites will obey God's commands. They would be God's treasured possession among all peoples and be to God a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I mean, this sounds amazing. These are all wonderful, incredible things that we would look at and we would say, wow, God was really working in their life to bring them here. How could they turn their back on God? But think also about the physical and emotional state that they were in leading up to this decision they make to create another another God, another idol. I mean, again, we said the Israelites had been in slavery, but think of it. They've been in slavery for 400 years. This was the only life they knew. There in Egypt. Yes, it was slavery, but it was something that they knew. It was something that they understood. And so God has them leave everything. They take with them only what they can carry in their hands. They leave most of their possessions. And then they follow God out into the wilderness, out into the desert. Now, they know God is taking them to a promised land, but they don't know exactly where this land is. They don't know how long it's going to take to get to this land. So here they are wandering through the desert, following God with no end to this journey in sight, with no idea what's going to happen to them along the way. And, and this is one thing I thought about. They're eating the same food day in and day out. Now, I know if I fed Megan the same thing day in, day out, she'd start to complain a little bit, I think, as we all would. Right. They've got manna. And remember, they've already complained about this piece. The Lord has already sent quail to them because they were complaining about the manna. And this is, I think, most significant. Moses has gone up on the mountain and nobody's heard from him for over 30 days. So when we look at this golden calf story, when they go to make this golden calf, Moses has been up on the mountain for more than 30 days at this point. And remember, Moses was God's mouthpiece to the Israelites. Moses was the one who brought the, the Lord's word to the Israelites. So in the people's minds, as they're wandering through the desert and they're sitting at the, at the foot of this mountain for over 30 days, they haven't heard from God. In their mind, God has gone silent. They're not hearing from him anymore. So the people feel distant from God and they feel abandoned. They feel alone. They feel away from home, away from all things familiar, sitting in the silence in the desert. They don't know the plan. They don't know the immediate future. They only see the moment, and they don't like what they see. They have lost faith in the promises of God. The Israelites, though chosen by God and living out His perfect plan for them, find themselves in difficult circumstances and feeling abandoned by God. I mean, I think that's significant. The Israelites were literally in God's perfect plan, right? God himself had taken them out of Egypt and was leading them with pillars of fire and cloud through the desert. They were following God's perfect plan. But in the midst of that, they felt alone. They felt abandoned by God. They felt very afraid. Has anyone ever felt that way? God, where are you? Right. God, don't you see me here? Don't you see what's going on? Why do things have to be so difficult? We've all been there before. So with that background, let's turn back to the golden calf story. Verse 1 indicates that the Israelites had grown tired of waiting for God. And in the silence, the Israelites lose their faith. They despair. Now, to despair, it means to lose all hope or confidence. You see, they had seen the acts of God. They had seen God work in mighty and miraculous and powerful ways. They'd seen the acts of God. But in the silence, their hearts turned from God. Because they didn't see God working anymore. there was that period of silence where God didn't work. You see, they didn't understand the ways of God. They didn't understand that even though they couldn't see God's works, God was working on their behalf. Psalm 103 verse 7 says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. You see, the Israelites were content with God so long as they could see him working. So long as they saw him doing things, so long as they saw progress being made, and they saw this incredible evidence of God working. They said, okay, I can follow you, God. I see you working. But when the silence came, they turned from God, because they didn't understand the ways of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Israelites doubted this truth. They did not remember this truth. This truth, Isaiah, of course, had prophesied this after the Israelites, after this event. But they didn't they didn't understand that God himself was working on their behalf. In Acts 7.39, this is a neat verse, Stephen, we don't know the deacon Stephen, as he's getting ready to be put to death and he's giving his defense, he's he's proclaiming the gospel right before he dies. He looks back on this moment in history and and he says exactly what was happening in the Israelites hearts when they turned from God and turned to this golden calf to bake this golden calf. And in Acts 7.39, Stephen explains, he says, our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. You see, the Israelites turned from God to another God. They abandoned their belief in God and chose to put their belief in another. And the first thing I want us to see about idolatry, how it affects our beliefs and our actions from this story, is that idolatry is most tempting when we are going through difficult times and God seems distant. I want you guys to know that that is when you are will be most tempted to abandon your belief in God and to put your belief in something else is when you're going through difficult times and God seems distant. And I assure you, difficult times are coming. All of us are either walking through difficult times or we will walk through difficult times. And we probably all have walked through difficult times already. There will be times when you cry out to God for him to to answer your, your need in a very specific way, and he will not in that way that you want. There will be times you feel you'll cry out in desperation. You'll say, God, I need you to do this now. I need a work of God now. And he will not answer it. There will be times where that happens in your life. And the temptation will be to despair as the Israelites did. And as we've already said, despair means to lose all hope or confidence. And in this despair, it will tempt you to turn from God to another God to get your own way in your own time. This is idolatry. It could also be defined as iniquity. getting your I want my way and I want it now. But this is what the Israelites were doing here in their idolatry. They were saying, I'm tired of God's way. I'm tired of waiting on God. I am turning from God and I'm going to take things into my own hands and I'm going to make this happen. That's what idolatry does. This is your heart beginning to thrust God aside as the Israelites did. This kind of reaction to trials reveals that you haven't fully trusted in God. Instead, it reveals that you only trusted in God as a means to get for you what you believe will bring you fulfillment. St. Augustine, back in the fourth century, wrote, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used Or using anything that ought to be worshipped. That's sometimes how we approach God. We can even view God as an idol to get what we want. Right. And if you approach God that way and you all of a sudden come to a difficult time where you hear God go silent and he's not answering the prayers in the way you want them to be answered, you can be very tempted to despair and turn from God to another God. You know, there was a time, uh, last time I preached, it was the day after my dad's birthday. This time, as I preach, this is the day after the fifth anniversary of my dad's death. And I guarantee you, there were times that Mom and Megan and I cried out to God. We asked for healing. We asked for help. And God didn't answer the prayers in the way we wanted them answered. In fact, we prayed so much. One time, Dad, as he was laying in bed, said, you know, Seth, you don't have to pray every time you come in here. said, <laughs> I know, Dad. I got it. But we cried out to God and he didn't answer. And in those times, it's very tempting to despair. Now, what I want you to know is despair is distinguished from sorrow. OK, when you go through difficult times, I'm not saying just slap a smile on your face and, and soldier on. That's not it at all. You will feel sorrow and sorrow is defined as a deep distress, sadness, or regret, especially for the loss of someone or something loved. Sorrow, when you go through hard times, is expected. It's even healthy. You see, Jesus says those who mourn will be comforted. So when you go through difficult times and you have sorrow, that's fine. Remember this, Hebrews thirteen five. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In your sorrow, know that God's ways are above your ways. In your sorrow, know that God's thoughts are above your thoughts. Know that just because you don't see God working doesn't mean he's not working. Just because you don't see the acts of his work, it doesn't mean he's not working on your behalf. Scripture guarantees us that he works all things together for his glory and for our good. So as you go through these difficult times, we don't thank God for difficult times. Those are hard. Those are tough. They hurt. They're painful. But we do thank God and we do praise God that he is working during those difficult times to bring himself glory and to bring us closer to him. So it's very important that we guard against despair when going through these difficult times. But the Israelites didn't. They despaired. They lost faith and all hope in God and they turned from another God. And notice that the turn from God to another took place in the Israelites' hearts first. The Israelites' beliefs changed, right? They no longer believed in God and began looking for comfort and peace and security in something besides God. The Israelites cut loose the anchor of their faith in God and they became unmoored. They began rowing, looking for another port in hopes of finding something better. Notice the Israelites, they weren't victims in this, were they? God was still providing manna every day. God hadn't abandoned them. He hadn't left them. They weren't victims in this. They intentionally decided, God, I'm not pleased with the way you're handling my life right now. I'm going to abandon my faith in you and I'm going to go to another God. And what do they do? They gather all the gold, their own gold, and they make their own God. Right. They, they make this. They bring their gold together. They melt it down. They form it into a calf. They carve this thing and, and they make their own God. You see, the Israelites abandon their belief in God and they put their belief in the work of their own hands. That's what idolatry does. Idolatry serving an idol will cause you to abandon your belief in God and put your faith in the work of your own hands. That's something for us to think about this morning. Is there any area of our life where we are putting our faith in the work in our, of our own hands rather than in the work of the infinite hands of God? Do you think that your peace and happiness and joy and comfort is the product of the work of your own hands? The people of Israel, of Israel sacrificed their gold and carved a new image and they worshipped it. They worshipped the work of their own hands. And then from the story we see here, once they made this image and once they worshipped it, It was at that time that they felt at peace enough to feast and to sit down and then to get up and to go play. It was the the faith in the work of their own hands. That's what brought them comfort. It wasn't what God had done. It was what they had done. It was the faith in the work of their own hands. And lastly, notice about the story that the Israelites, they didn't give credit to the God of their own hands for things that God actually did and for things that only God is capable of doing. Right? Once this idol is made, once they put it together, then Aaron puts these things up before him and he says, Behold, this is the God. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Right? So what we have a tendency to do with idolatry, it changes our beliefs. And we will actually worship the work of our own hands and will attribute to the work of our own hands that which God has done. And that which only God is capable of doing. So these are the kind of a couple of things for us to notice about this. And I want us to see th- that God's response to the people's idolatry. This is significant. Look with me in, in, back in Exodus 32, verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. Because Moses is up on the mountain, remember. He's been up there with God. He's been receiving the laws that are going to be there for the people, part of their covenant. And so the Lord says to Moses, go down. in order that I may make a great nation of you. And then drop down to verse 20. This is what happens to their idol. He took, this Moses. Moses took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. God's anger burns against idolatry. And it burns against idolatry because idolatry robs God of glory that is due him. OK, this idolatry is offensive to God and he himself will oppose it. But it's not only that it robs God of his glory. You see, idolatry will destroy us. That's also why he opposes it. In Psalm 115 verses four through eight. You can turn there if you'd like. Psalm 115 verses four through eight. The psalmist writes. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So when we follow idols, we actually become like those idols, meaning we become separated from God. We become dead. That's what idolatry does to us. It takes us away from God and attaches us to another. For those of us who have been made God's children through the saving work of Jesus Christ, God's anger doesn't burn against us personally, individually now. right? We've been saved. We've been forgiven. We've been washed clean. But today, still, God's anger burns against idolatry. And he will oppose that idolatry both for his glory... And for our good. So what we see of the the story of this golden calf, it demonstrates how idolatry affects our beliefs, right? It causes us to quit believing in God and to put our beliefs in another, whether that's usually the work of our own hands. Uh, We're susceptible to these same dangers today. Our hearts are prone to doubt God and turn from him. We're prone to trust in the works of our own hands instead of God. We are prone to praise ourselves instead of God. And God, in his mercy and his grace, will oppose our idolatry. They've prayed for this, but here's a modern day example of idolatry where it's very um, a huge potential for idolatry is politics. We're getting ready to go vote on Tuesday. Right? Look at some of the parallels of today's politics with the Golden Calf story. Does it seem like God has gone silent in America? Are there areas where we look and say, God, where are you? What, what, what's happening here? We're seeing this country lose its foundation of Christianity. Where are you, God? The temptation is there to despair and to turn to the work of our own hands. If I could just get my candidate elected, then things will be better. If we could just get this man elected, oh, he'll bring us back. Then we'll be good. Now, I don't think we ever get to the point where we actually praise our politicians. (laughs) as the Israelites praise that God, but you get the idea, right? The temptation is there. And I fear that the church in a lot of ways has despaired when it comes to American culture and American society. I fear that we have put far too much hope in politicians and far too little in God. We seem to have abandoned the belief that God can work in and through His church to change men's hearts. And instead, we put our hope in laws that will simply restrict the actions of men. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should not be involved in politics. We absolutely should. We live in a great country with wonderful freedom and privilege to do that. And we should, and we should do that. Government is necessary. James Madison said in Federalist number 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. <laughs> But it is necessary. We look around. It is absolutely necessary and we should be involved. But I just want you guys to think as you go to vote on Tuesday, and I hope you do. Please go and vote. As you go and do that, where's your hope? Are you are you are you putting your hope in a politician or is your hope in Jesus Christ? Just think about that as you go. So let's look at this last point of how do we keep ourselves from idols? How do we keep ourselves from idols? John says, keep yourselves from idols. The NAS says to guard yourselves from idols. This is an action word. This requires intentionality on our part. It requires a participation on us. And there's lots of things we can look at this morning. There's lots of ways of being in the word, of being in Christian fellowship, of being in prayer, of being discipled. All of these things are very important in keeping ourselves from idols. But one, one scripture I want to look at today um, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. And here we see Paul, he ties fleeing from idolatry directly to communion, which is what we're going to celebrate this morning. In this scripture, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 and 16, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So you see, Paul is connecting our participation in the blood and body of Jesus Christ with fleeing from idolatry. Our participation in the body and blood of Jesus means that we are recipients of the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ. And the primary benefit of the death of Jesus Christ is that we are no longer separated from God. We're in relationship with him. We are welcomed into relationship with God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We who were once slaves to sin, considered enemies of God, but now through his love, through his mercy, he's brought us near. He's lavished his grace upon us. He offered his son as a sacrifice so that we might live. And so this morning, as we get ready to take this communion, I want you guys to think, as you come up and you break off a piece of that bread, I want you to remember how Jesus's body was broken for us. As you reach out and you take this cup, I want you to remember how his blood was poured out for you. We come to the Lord's table and this is the table that God himself has set. Right. This is the table that that God set through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be brought near to God. And and, and as as we come, we do this in remembrance. We remember the goodness and faithfulness of God demonstrated by the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, for the propitiation of our sins. So as we take communion today in, in remembrance of Jesus Christ, focus on His incredible love for you. Let the wonder of the gospel fill your hearts. I hope that you'll realize how unsatisfying your idols are and how amazing Jesus Christ and his love is. That's why we flee from idols. Because we remember the love of God. And one last thing is before we get ready to, to partake of communion. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul encourages us to examine ourselves before we come and take of communion. And this morning I put you before you guys, hopefully, a, 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 some, some things to think about when it comes to idolatry. Right? And I want you guys to ask, literally ask God, as you're sitting there now, and as you get ready to come to take of, this, of these elements, ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. Ask him to show you, is there any offensive way in you? This was a prayer David prayed. Ask him to show you, am I putting my hope in anything besides God? Ask him to show you if you've despaired in any area of your life. And guys, I don't say this to bring condemnation upon you. Because what God will do when he brings you that wonderful, beautiful conviction, Scripture says repentance brings refreshing. You see, God won't point it out and then say, fix it. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. God will will show us the sin in our lives. We will simply confess that and agree with him. And then he will meet us right where we are. And he will walk with us as he starts to crush down that idol in our life. It's actually a time that may be painful at times, but it's a time of great refreshing and great peace that will come from that. And I also ask that if you're not a believer with us today, this table is for believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer, we ask you that you not partake in it. It doesn't mean you're not welcome here. We actually love that you are here today, and we hope if you're not a believer today... That, that you will ask your questions, that you'll keep coming back. You're welcome here. I hope you come back and you, and you dig in and you challenge us with questions. That would be a wonderful thing. And if you have any questions, please come see one of us. Please come talk to us about those, that you would maybe come to faith in Jesus Christ even today. So I'm going to pray now. Um, and then once I get done praying, I'll ask the praise band to come and take communion first so that you guys can then, can then worship. And then just as you're ready, or I guess Dave will probably come, and the deacons can come, and, and they'll kind of guide you through this. But let's pray, and, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for the opportunity to come here and, and to just dig into your word, Father, to see your message, to see that um, we're not alone in this, Father. And I pray this morning for each one of us that you, Holy Spirit, would bring to mind any idols that we have that we may not even be aware of right now, Father. We know that those idols that we have in our lives, we tend to worship them instead of You. We tend to put our faith and our hope in the works of our own hands instead of in the works of Your hands. And Father, I pray right now comfort for anyone who's going through a a difficult time. I pray for anyone who is either on the edge of despairing or who has despaired. Father, I pray that You would meet them this morning. I pray that you would pour out your love upon them. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would come alongside them. And Lord, we do ask for conviction. We just ask that you would draw us closer to you, bring us to the foot of the cross this morning. And as we partake of these elements, Father, that we would participate in in the death of Jesus Christ. That we would remember your goodness this morning, Father. We just love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if the deacons would come up and help with this, and if the praise team would come first and and take communion. That would be great.